0: We can go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I want to pray for us here in a moment, and then we will get started. John chapter 13. We're going to begin reading in verse 31. John chapter 13, verse 31. Let me pray for us tonight and then we will jump right in. we got some good stuff tonight. Just take my word for it. It's good stuff. So we're going to dig, 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 and it's rich, and we're going to find some treasures and some nuggets and uh, some life-changing stuff. And so I'm excited about preaching that. Let's let's, uh, pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're so grateful, Lord, for this privilege that is ours to gather as a faith family and, Lord, to fellowship around your word. We are so grateful for that, and we just want to say that we love you and we praise you. And we ask, Lord, that you would move in our midst, that you would touch our hearts and change our lives. And, and, God, that we would understand this text that we're going to study. And we would take what we learn, take what we understand, and we would apply it to our lives. And, Lord, we know all that's possible. The understanding of Scripture, the, the application of Scripture, the, the obedience to Scripture. All of that's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you just have your way in our lives, in our midst, for the glory of Christ. And we'll thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, One other uh, quick announcement, and I say this with with sadness. Uh, Tonight was the last fellowship meal until the end of the summer. So, yeah, I know, I know, and it always hurts my feelings because the first Wednesday when we don't have supper, the crowd is way down. So, uh, so it really is the food, it really is, and, and I always come face-to-face with that reality the week after we don't have any more meals. So, anyway, I, now I appreciate our ladies uh, that serve so faithfully, and they do a great job. Uh, just love them so much, and our men that come and, and help uh, in different ways and, and clean and all of that. I'm so grateful for our ministry team in that area. They do a great job, and they deserve the rest, I guess, I guess. They deserve the rest. I deserve to eat every Wednesday night, but they deserve the rest. All right, all right. John chapter 13, John chapter 13. Oh, one other announcement. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, I want you to be here, uh, 9, 9.30 or 11. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and this Sunday is a very important message. We're going to talk about the, the the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit and what it means that the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to every believer. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. And some really important it's a really important passage. Sort of it's gonna be sort of Holy Spirit one oh one, kind of looking at the basics and then thinking about the implications for our lives. And so uh, if you were teetering as to whether or not you need to be here Sunday, you need to be here Sunday. We're gonna we're gonna we're going to celebrate and investigate the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't remember. Now it could just be that I was young and distracted by other things, but I don't remember uh, in my my childhood growing up in church, I don't remember a sermon specifically about the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean there wasn't one, okay? But I just don't remember one. I know we talked a lot about Jesus Christ, a lot about God the Father, heard the gospel, so grateful for that, heard biblical messages, so grateful for that. But I don't recall a specific message about the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, it's you know the the ministry the person the work of the spirit is just everywhere in the Bible and so when you're working your way through the Bible uh, you, you've got to, to to address that and and want to address that so excited about that so just want to invite you to be back here bring somebody with you this Sunday morning all right John chapter thirteen verse thirty one the Bible says when he had gone out that he speaks of Judas. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're going to dig into this passage. Uh, just kind of a quick word about this study. We're calling it Lessons from the Upper Room. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, Jesus gathered his disciples, small band of, of, of disciples in the Upper Room, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. In that upper room, and before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would pray and then be betrayed, Jesus spends some time uh, teaching his disciples. And this teaching is just rich. And, and, and so that's what we call lessons from the upper room. Is Jesus has some things he wanted them to understand before he was taken away from them. And so we've just kind of been walking through these lessons. We, as a matter of fact, we've only done one. Uh, a few weeks ago we looked at uh, John 13 and Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But tonight I want to talk to you about a new command. He gives his disciples a new command. Why does he call it new? Well, I'll answer that later on. But it's a new command here in John chapter 13. And what I want to do is I want to just walk through this passage under four different headings because we need to understand all that's going on here to understand the new command that Jesus Christ gives his disciples and subsequently gives us. So here are the four aspects of this passage. Number one, and I could preach about this all night, the unparalleled resolve of Jesus. The unparalleled resolve of Jesus. There in verse 31 it says, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Remember, he identifies him at the, the meal that he has with his disciples. And Judas uh, leaves the supper and he is going to bring the religious leaders and the temple ple- police and the soldiers to where Jesus was going to be so that he could be arrested and ultimately executed. And so, Judas has made his decision. It says he has left the room. And Jesus says, now, now that he's gone, now I want to talk to you about some things. But it's interesting to note that it was after he had gone out. I like what G.B. Caird says. He writes, With the departure of Judas, all the actors in the drama, and Jesus in particular, are committed to their courses of action, which make the crucifixion virtually accomplished. Jesus knew what was at stake when Judas left the room. He knew... The cross is going to happen. And yet, he doesn't run. He teaches his disciples. He spends time with them, pouring into them. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with full knowledge that he was about to be betrayed. In other words, Jesus Christ chose Calvary. He knew it was coming, and he stayed the course that led him to that place called the skull. And here's how I'd like to say it. Jesus had marched toward Calvary bravely and faithfully, and now the time had come. Now that Judas had left, the time had come. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be tried. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be crucified. He knew the time had come. But his resolve in this passage is nothing new. As a matter of fact, Jesus had showed resolve throughout his ministry. Let me show you a couple of places. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. I saw this the other day in my quiet time, and it blessed me. It really did. Look in Mark chapter 10 with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. This is when he's headed back to Jerusalem for the final time with his disciples, knowing he's going to be crucified. He'd been predicting to his disciples, I'm going to get there. I'm going to be arrested, betrayed. Uh, I'm, going to be, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. In verse 32, knowing what was coming, it says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus knew what was coming, but he led the way. He was marching bravely, faithfully toward Jerusalem. And it says, as they saw Jesus walking ahead of them, knowing what was coming, it says, they were amazed. And some of them, it says, were were afraid, the ones following. They were scared to death. That's why they were amazed that Jesus Christ was out in front leading the way. They were amazed at the resolve of Jesus that would keep walking towards Calvary even though he knew the suffering that would be his. Over in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible says, quoting Isaiah 50, it says, that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Flint's a hard rock. And it's the Bible's way of saying that Jesus Christ was committed to go to the cross. There was no turning back. So we see in John 13, Judas leaves. Jesus knows what's coming, but he's showing unparalleled resolve. He knows his time has come. Because he says there, back in John 13, after Judas left, look what he says. Let me get there. John chapter 13, it says... When he had gone out, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He's speaking of the cross. Now's the time for my glory to shine. And so the first thing we see in this passage is the unparalleled resolve of Jesus. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't turn back from the cross? He went to the cross driven by his desire to obey and glorify the Father and driven by, compelled by, his love for you and for Me. And so we see the unparalleled resolve of Jesus. Secondly, we see the ultimate purpose of the cross. We see in this text what the cross is ultimately about. It says there in verse 31 when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So he's saying, Now's the time that I will be betrayed. I will be arrested, I will be tried, I will be scourged, I will be beaten, I will be mocked, I will be ridiculed, I will carry the cross beam, and fall down under its weight, I will be nailed to a cruel Roman cross hanging there from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. Jesus knew what was coming, but he's saying now in these events that are about to transpire, now in the, the crucifixion, in the cross, my death for the sins of the world, now you will see... Clearly, dramatically, the glory of God. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that what was about to happen was for the glory of God. You need to understand this. Listen to me. The cross is for us. Jesus died so that we might be saved. We might be forgiven of our sins. He died to take our punishment. He died in our place, right? It's one of the, the, those are the wonderful realities of the cross. But listen to me. Our salvation is not the ultimate purpose of the cross. It's one of the results of the cross, and I'm grateful for that result. Praise the Lord for forgiveness and salvation. But you need to understand, the ultimate purpose for the cross is the glory of God. The glory of God. And by the way, that's the ultimate purpose in human history. That's the ultimate purpose in everything God does. The glory of God. It's all about his glory. And his glory is magnified brightly at the cross. Wait, how does the cross glorify God? Because he mentions there God the Son, God the Father. Look what it says there in verse uh, verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So God the Son's glorified at the cross. God the Father's glorified at the cross. How is God glorified? And by the way, the word glory speaks of worth. And so when we say that God is glorified at the cross, we're saying that God's worth is on full display at the cross. The word glory, the Hebrew word, is the word kavod, and it, and it carries with it the idea of weight. And in ancient times, kings would actually weigh their possessions to see who was worth more. And if one king had more stuff that weighed more than this king down the road, this king was worth more than that king. So that word kavod came to be used with the idea of worth. So when we say that God is glorious, what we're saying is God is worthy. He weighs much. He is is a God of of infinite value and worth. And, And when we worship what we're doing, listen, when we worship what we're doing is we are ascribing to him the worth that is due his name. We are recognizing, God, you are worthy. God, you are majestic. God, you are glorious. This is what worship is. We are responding to the infinite worth of God and his worth is clearly, dramatically displayed at Calvary. Now, how does the cross magnify the greatness or the worth of God? Well, the cross glorifies, first of all, the Son's obedience. The Son's obedience. He says there that the Son of Man is glorified. Now the time has come, you're going to see the Son of Man glorified. Over in Philippians 2, the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ Uh, emptying himself to take on human flesh, to take on humanity. And it says in that passage that Jesus Christ was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, the Bible says, Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him, God has exalted his son Jesus Christ, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so because Jesus Christ displayed obedience to the Father in going to the cross and dying for our sins, taking our punishment, God has said, you are are exalted. And when Jesus Christ is exalted, it exalts God the Father who sent him. And so God the Son... God the Father, are exalted in the obedience of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons we ought to be grateful for Jesus, one of the reasons that we ought to praise Jesus and glorify Jesus is because of his perfect obedience displayed on earth that led him all the way to Calvary for you and for me. Amen? I'm I'm having to cue you tonight because y'all look a little tired, to be honest with you. Now here's the second thing. The cross not only glorifies the Son's obedience, the cross glorifies the holiness of God. Isaiah 53 says that that Jesus, the, the suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement, the discipline that brings us peace. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So what is God the Father doing at the cross? He is punishing sin. Our sin that Jesus Christ takes upon himself. Isn't that incredible? You see... People think that they're going to get to heaven based upon their good deeds. A lot of people think that. And they think it's going to go something like this. They stand before God one day when they die and they say, You know, God, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I was a, I was a good old guy or a good old gal. I'd give somebody the shirt off my back took care of my family, never killed anybody. So God, surely you can see that that my my good outweighs my bad. And and, and people like that think that God's going to say, you're exactly, come on into heaven, come on in. And he's going to take all the sins from these people and just kind of sweep them under the rug and say, no big deal. Now listen to me. If God looked at our sin and said no big deal, he would cease to be holy. Because God is a God of infinite perfection and holiness, he must punish sin. If he didn't punish sin, he would no longer be holy. And if, listen, if God did not have to punish sin, then Jesus Christ died on the cross for no reason. Right? I mean, it was just needless. It was was senseless if God doesn't have to punish sin. But see, the, the reality is this. God is holy. He has to punish sin. And he's going to punish your sin in one of two ways. He's either going to apply the punishment that Jesus took in your place to your spiritual account, or if you don't embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to be punished for your sins in that awful place called hell. But listen, your sins will be punished. God does not wink at sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug. That's why Jesus had to die. And so at the cross, we see magnified the the infinite holiness, the perfection of God that hates sin and must punish sin. That's in the character and nature of God. And so the cross glorifies the holiness of God. So wait, how serious is God about sin? His son had to die to pay the penalty for sins. That's how serious God is. Third, the cross glorifies the love of God. This gets to the motivation of, of God providing a substitutionary atonement, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. Romans 5.8 says, and I love this verse, that God demonstrates, that word could be translated proves, God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the fact that God the Father sent God the Son to die for our sins helps us to understand how much he loves us. And notice that verse says, while we were yet sinners. In other words, Jesus didn't die for us because we're lovely. He died for us even though we had rebelled against him, right? And that magnifies the love of God. Romans 5, 8. he demonstrates his love for us in that Christ died for us. And so the cross is the, the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Listen to me. You never have to wonder, does God love me? All you've got to do, all you've got to do is survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And if you would just gaze at the cross and remember that Jesus Christ took your sin and died in your place, and God the Father punished Jesus, His Son, so He would not have to punish you. You cannot long forget That you are loved. God loves you. And I believe, based upon the authority of the Word of God, I can meet anyone, anywhere in this world and say to them, look them in the eyes and say, God loves you. The cross demonstrates that God loves you. And so the cross glorifies the love of God. The love of God was on display at Calvary, amazing love that he would send a son. Now that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But then fourth, the cross glorifies the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. You see, there's a, a, a tension raised in the Bible. The tension is this. God is holy and must punish sin but God is loving and wants to forgive sinners. So how does that all work out? How can God maintain his perfect holiness and his amazing love? How can that all work out? The answer is the cross. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 3, one of the great passages in the Bible. Romans chapter 3. We're going to get to the new command in a minute, but just hang with me. Romans chapter 3. This is all just set up for my sermon, all right? This is introduction. Romans chapter 3. I'm just kidding a little bit. Romans 3. Look what it says. Oh, let's, uh, let's look in verse 23. Start there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation means that Jesus Christ took God the Father's wrath in our place. His wrath against sin, Jesus took it for us. He satisfied the wrath of God so we would not have to encounter the wrath of God against our sin. So he says God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So how do you receive salvation? How do you receive forgiveness? How do you receive Christ's death on your behalf? Through faith, believing in him. This was to show Jesus Christ dying on the cross as a propitiation for our sins, God sending him to the cross. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, watch this, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So the cross allowed God to be just and punish sin, but also to be a loving justifier who forgives sinners. Because at the cross, he made a way for sinners to be saved, but he also punished sin as he punished his son who died in our place. So the cross glorifies the wisdom of God. God's the one that... that that conceived of this this way for sinners to be saved and his holiness to be upheld. G.R. Beasley Murray writes, God was glorified in the perfect obedience and love of the Son, which was, however, at the same time a revelation of the love of God to humankind. In virtue of that act, God glorifies the Son in himself. So back in John 3, Jesus is clear, the time has come, Judas has left. He's going to betray me. He's going to hand me over to the religious authorities. But understand that this time that has now come, my time of crucifixion, it is for the glory of God. John chapter 13. So let me just say this to you, just kind of parenthetically. If, if, you, um, if you run out of reasons to praise God, that should never happen. Let's just say that you do. Let's you run out of reasons to praise God just start praising him for the cross. Because at the cross, he is ultimately glorified. We're saved. He is glorified. I'm so grateful for the cross. But let's go to the third thing very quickly. Let's talk about the urgent seriousness of the moment. The urgent seriousness of the moment. This kind of frames the entire discussion about upper room teaching. Look what it says in verse 33, back in John 13. Jesus says... Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now i also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus wants them to understand he would not be physically with them indefinitely. Jesus knew he was going to die on the cross. He was going to rise from the dead, spend about 40 days, appearing to about 500 followers of Christ. But then he knew at the end of that time period he was going to ascend to the Father. The other day, my daughter Abby asked me what ascend means because I said it in some context. And I said, "Well, it floats. He's got, you know, he goes up. He just goes up into the air. How do you explain that ascend? So he just, he just, he, you know, he's there one moment and then he just goes back up into the air, up into the clouds. And the Bible teaches he is at the right hand of the Father, uh, but he's letting them know, listen to me. I'm, I'm not going to be physically physically present with you indefinitely now we know that jesus christ is always present with us he said when he gave us the great commission i'll never leave you or he said uh i'm with you always even to the end of the age in hebrews jesus is quoted as saying i will never leave you nor forsake you and so jesus is always with us spiritually speaking but he's not physically with us right one day our faith will become sight we'll see jesus will be like him first john 3 but right now he is spiritually present in our lives And he wanted the disciples to understand there's going to be a shift. It's going to be different for you to follow me when you can't see me. It's going to be different. And so here's some things you need to understand. Now, I believe that sets the stage for all of the upper room teachings. He wants them to understand what it means to live for Christ by faith and the resources that he has given us to live the Christian life by faith. And so he gives them this statement, listen, you're not going to be able to go where I'm going. I'm going to heaven, and it's not your time yet. One day it will be your time. It's not your time. I'll be in heaven. You'll be on earth. I will not be physically with you, and so understand that you need to listen up. I'm about to say some very important stuff. You need to listen up, all right? The urgent seriousness of the moment, which brings me to the main point, all right? He gives them, as he has them you know, on the edge of their seats, understanding the seriousness of that moment, he gives them a new command. The new command. Look what he says in verses 34 and 35. Are you still with me? Say amen. All right. 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So so just very basic, what is the new command he gives them in the upper room as he wants them to understand he's no longer going to be physically with them? Here it is. The new command is to love one another like Jesus loves us. That's the command he gives the disciples And by extension, he gives us. Because he's talking about loving one another, other disciples. And so if you're a disciple, then you are to obey this command. Love one another like Jesus loves us. Now, here's the question. What makes this command new? A new command. Because this isn't the first time he's taught love. That we're to love others. As a matter of fact, way back in the book of Leviticus, in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament... Leviticus nineteen says, 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quoted Leviticus when he was approached by a lawyer, and they asked uh, the lawyer asked, what are the great, greatest commandments? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the great, greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The second is like it. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, on these two commandments, loving God, loving neighbor, on these two commandments hang the entire law and prophets. That sums up the entire moral law of God just by loving him, loving others. In other words, instead of keeping a checklist of commandments, have I done this, have I done this, have I done this, have I not done this? Instead of having this checklist of commandments, just love God and love others and you'll, and you'll obey the commandments. Right? covers it all, right? And so Jesus had already taught this, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So why in the world... Does he say here it's a new commandment? Because he'd already stated this commandment. Let me give you several reasons. This is a new commandment. Specifically, three reasons. This is a new commandment. And just be forewarned, this is really good stuff. All right. Number one, it's a new command because of a it's a it it, it focuses on a new object. A new object. There's a new object, a new direction for the love of God's people. Look what it says there in verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Everyone say, one another. Now, there's a a difference between this and Leviticus 19 and, and when Jesus gives the great commandments to the lawyer and the religious leaders. When he gives the great commandments, he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and your mind. Love your what? neighbor as yourself. Here he says, love one another. So there's a difference there, a different object. It's not just loving your neighbor, it's loving one another. Now, Wade, why is this, why is that a big deal, that, that difference in language? Well, we are called, you and I are called, the disciples were called to love all disciples of Jesus. That's what he means by the one another. We are called to love all disciples of Jesus. So anyone that's in the body of Christ, we're commanded to love them. It's more than just loving your neighbor. It's loving those who are followers of Christ. The object was now one another instead of neighbor. And here's why this was important. The Jews had twisted the teaching about loving your neighbor. And they twisted it in such a way that they got away with loving you know, the Jewish family that lived beside them. But they could righteously hate the Samaritans that lived you know, across the line in Samaria. Or they could hate the Gentiles. And so they would justify their hate by saying, Hey, the Bible says love your neighbor. I love my neighbor. I love the Jewish family beside me. I just don't like the Samaritans. I, I just don't like, the, the, I don't like the, the Greeks. I don't like them at all. I don't want them in my house. I don't want to go in their house. I, I don't like them. I hate them. But they'd say, but I love my neighbor. But see, Jesus changes things when he says, I've got a new command for you. Love one another. That's important because the one another's in the body of Christ encompass all types of people, right? Jews, Samaritans, we'll talk about that Sunday, Greeks, Asians, Europeans, Americans... So when he says love one another, he is is broadening the scope of the command. The the, the followers of Christ could not hide behind the idea of, well, I'm just loving my neighbors, I don't have to love everyone. He's saying you need to love one another. Now to understand this, you need to understand how divided the world was in the first century. You had divisions between masters and slaves. You had divisions between Jews and Gentiles. You had divisions between Greeks and 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 Jews the the Greeks regarded the Jews as barbarians the the Jews considered the Gentiles to be dogs the Jews hated the Samaritans and called them Assyrian half breeds I mean there was so much division in the world in the first century and what do we see in our world today great division right conflict you see you see um, Ferguson and 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 in Baltimore and and the different conflicts that that stem from great division in society that's nothing new you need to understand that 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 division among people is nothing new it goes all the way back to to as old as humanity is and it was certainly true in the first century so there's this vast chasm between people i mean there's all these lines of division the world seemed helplessly alienated so what's the solution? There are all these dividing lines. What's the solution? How do you get people to come together? Well, as people embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you command them to love one another. And all of a sudden, as you have all these different folks from different backgrounds in the body of Christ loving one another, those lines begin to fall, right? The divisions, the walls begin to crumble, and a beautiful thing emerges. The body of Christ, diverse yet Unified. I like what R. Kent Hughes writes, Left to ourselves, listen to this, Left to ourselves, we seek our own. Movie stars marry movie stars. Doctors seek out doctors. Middle classers seek out middle classers. Bikers seek bikers. But when Christ comes, that changes. In the church of Jesus Christ, we discover that the people we love and with whom we fellowship are different than us. The more there is of the love Christ exhorted us to have, a love for one another, the greater will be the diversity within the body of Christ. So this command is new because it has a new object. You can't just say, well, I love my neighbor, that's good enough. No, I want you to love one another. I want you to love the, the believer that is sitting beside you worshiping, that Samaritan. And the, the, new, the new folks that just moved here from, from Macedonia and speak Greek, love them too. Love one another. And as Jesus gave this command, he was, he was sowing the seed that would cause these divisions to crumble if the, the command was obeyed. And so there's a new object. We are called to love one another in the body of Christ regardless of ethnicity, regardless of skin tone, regardless of language, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of profession, regardless of circumstances. We are commanded by Christ to love one another, period. And to not love another person in the body of Christ is direct disobedience to the command of Christ, and it is a sin you need to repent. And I, I want you to just hear your pastor say this. Prejudice in any of its forms is sin, it's sin. It's wrong. It's not right. You are sinning against a holy God. He, Jesus said, love one another. So there, there, there's no explanation. We can't explain away our racism or our prejudice. There, it, it just won't hold up. Because Jesus says, love one another. And so this new object makes this a new command. Love one another. Not just love your neighbor. Love one another. Anyone in the body of Christ, you are called to love them. And here's another thing. Not only a new object, but there's a new measure. A new measure of our love. Jesus raises the bar here. Look what he says in verse 33. Or verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And here it is. Just as I have loved you. Wow! That's the standard of our love. That's what we're shooting for. To love each other the way Jesus loves us. That's big time, isn't it? That's not easy. Jesus has raised the bar. And so, we're commanded... To love the way Jesus loves us. The measure of our love for others is Jesus' love for us. If we're not seeking to love others the way that Jesus loves us, then we are not obeying this command. In other words, we are to love in the light of the cross. We're to love in the light of the cross. How did Jesus love us? Well, he, he came to serve. He says, I, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He came to sacrifice. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. He came to give his life for us. He sought us out. He said in Luke 19, verse 10, uh, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So here's the picture of the love of the Savior. Seeking, serving, sacrificing. That is great love, right? And so that, that measure should be what we compare our love to. And we want to be like Jesus, seeking folks out, serving others, laying down our own lives and agendas and plans and purposes for others. That's what our love should look like. And if you don't get this loving in light of the cross, Jesus makes it very clear in John 15. Look what it says in John 15, verse 12. We'll get to John 15 in a few weeks, and we're going to spend a lot of time in John 15. Look what it says in John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment. He's repeating it here, that you love one another as I've loved you, the measure of our love. And and then he, he defines it for us a little bit more clearly in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So it's clear. The kind of love he's looking for in your life and my life for others is sacrificial love. Right, Not just lip service kind of love, but you're actually taking action to demonstrate your love to others. To, to to love others so that you can put their good above your good. That's the kind of love he's looking at. And so this, this new commandment is new because of the new measure. Love as I have loved you. That is a tall order. I think that's why Jesus said over in John 15 verse 5, Apart from me you can do nothing. You can't you can't you can't exemplify this kind of love. You can't live out this kind of love without without God's help. Right? You got to have his help to be able to love like this. But make no mistake, the measure of our love is the cross, the love of Christ displayed at Calvary. By the way, it's the same with husbands and wives, you know, over in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, the Bible says that 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 wives are to submit to the leadership of their husband. The Bible's very clear on the role of husband and wife uh, in the home. God has given primary spiritual leadership to the husband, and the wife submits to that leadership and comes along beside the husband to to encourage as 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 the husband and wife try to lead the family in a in a God honoring direction. Uh, and so you say, well, boy, that's that's tough that the wife has to, has to submit to the husband. Well, guess what it says about husbands? It says over in Ephesians 5 verse 25 that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. Think about that. I would say that's the tougher one. Love our wives like Christ loves the church. And by the way, I've never seen any woman that had a problem submitting to someone that loved her like Jesus. You just won't find that. Because here's the the biblical picture. How does Jesus love? He he gives, he serves, he he surrenders, he sacrifices, and and, and he he comes to his wife and says, I'm putting you above my needs and above my wants and my desires. And the wife says, well, I'm I'm submitting to your leadership, And, and they're both trying to outdo each other in putting the other ahead of themselves. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's not give and take, it's give. We're, we're giving each other. We're, we're, we're laying down our lives for the good of the other. When that's happening, you see a healthy, God-honoring marriage. But it's the same here. The measure of our love is to love like Jesus loves us. But finally, we'll finish with this. There's a new purpose. Why is this a new commandment in John 13? There's, there's a new... Um, a new, a new um, Object, sorry, there's a new measure, but third, there's a new purpose. Look what he says in verse 35. And this is so clear and so compelling. He says, By this, by you loving each other as I loved you, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we see in this a purpose that should drive our obedience to this command that people see and they know that we are his disciples. So let me say it like this. This is in your notes. Loving unity in the body of Christ is a witness to the world of the saving love of Jesus. Loving unity is a witness to the world of the saving love of Jesus, which would lead us to the opposite. Division and strife and backbiting and slander and fighting in the body of Christ is a... is appalling for the world to see it drives people away from Christ instead of to jesus christ and and you know if we went around the room and, and did some some interviews, some testimonies about past church experience, I bet we would have a lot of folks in here that could talk about some pretty horrendous things they have witnessed in the body of Christ just people acting fleshly, people acting ugly, and it just ought not to be that way you know it 's like you drive into a community and you see Harmony Baptist Church, and you drive a few miles down the road, and there's New Harmony Baptist Church? Think about it. Some, some of you get that when you get home. And, and really, the, the, the division, the church has, has, has made the church, by and large, a laughing stock. People are sitting back going, I don't want anything to do with that. I can fuss and fight in my home and fuss and fight at work. I don't want to fuss and fight at this, this you know, church gathering. And so we need to understand that this idea of loving each other as Christ loves us is a witness to the world of the saving love of Jesus. Now here's the question. Why is our love for others a witness to the world? Well, two things. Number one, it's appealing. It's appealing. Again, if someone is, is living in this world and you know they're, they're, they're always involved in strife and, and people trying to get ahead of them and and climbing the ladder, and you know, backbiting, and you know, trying, to, you know, trying to make it here or make it there, and there's, there's conflict in their family, and conflict in their workplace, and conflict in their marriage, and conflict with their kids, and conflict, conflict, conflict. When people are living in that kind of setting, when they see peace among people, it's like, wow, that looks nice people really loving each other and you know taking care of one another and ministering to one another and there for one another and 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 that that's that's appealing it's appealing because a, a church is a is a faith family right it's a faith family and when they see a family a family getting along it's like wow now that doesn't mean that we're family. doesn't mean we won't, that we won't see things differently sometimes or disagree on an issue, but we, but we deal with it biblically. When those things arise, we talk about it. We go to the person, and, and, we, and we deal with it, and we forgive, and we ask for forgiveness, and we, we deal with it biblically. And if we deal with stuff biblically, then, then things won't fester and, and boil to the surface if we deal with them. And so when people see a faith family that is loving each other, it is appealing. They're on the same page focused on the same thing it is appealing for people to say and jesus said when they when they see you loving each other like I loved you, they'll know you're you're my disciples Here's the second thing not only is it appealing, it's amazing it's amazing. you walk into church, you see people there that that are different, different backgrounds, you know. Different professions, different family situations, different circumstances, different skin colors, whatever the case may be. When you see people together and they love each other, it's, it's amazing to see. It is compelling for people to see that. I like what Alexander McLaren, preacher of old, wrote. He wrote Barbarian, Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. They were ready to break all other bonds and to yield to the uniting forces that streamed out from his cross. There never had been anything like it. No wonder that the world began to babble about sorcery and conspiracies and complicity in unnameable vices. It was only that the disciples were obeying the new commandment. And a new thing, listen, a new thing had come into the world, a community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or linguistic affinities or the iron fetters of the conqueror. The new commandment made a new thing, and the world wondered. They thought, what's going on with those Christians? What is the deal? I don't understand it, because it's a new thing that Christ did in the world. And Christ is continuing to do that new thing up up through our day. And as we love each other, we are showing the world the greatness of Christ as we love each other like Christ loved us. We can make the world wonder by our unity. Which leads me to this question. Kind of come full circle to personal application and and where you are in your life. Do those, this comes from James Montgomery Boyce, do those who are not yet Christians see God in you? It is a breathtaking thought. But this verse teaches that they can and will if you will love others. And the question is, will you? Will you love others the way Christ loves you? Are you willing to sacrifice and lay down your rights and your agenda for the good of other people? Are you willing to serve others? Are you willing to seek out others? Are you willing to sacrifice for others? Are you willing to show love? If you are, the world will be amazed, and the world will wonder. I heard this uh, a couple weeks ago, and I'm just going to assume that that the person in question was a visitor to our church and not a member of Longview Point, because here's what I heard. I heard that someone in our church, or someone visiting our church, was sitting out on a seat, and someone came and said they were sitting in their seat and asked them to move over i was going to assume that wasn't a long view point. I'm going to assume that was maybe a long time visitor that maybe just didn't know better. But listen to me. I'm, I'm not just, I'm not fussing or anything, but let's just let, listen to me. What does love do when someone's sitting where you usually sit? What does love do? It says, I'll find another place to sit. Right? I'll come sit on the front row by Pastor Wade. No big deal. Plenty of seats. And see, that's just, a, that's just a, an application of what it means to love others, right? I mean, actually actually laying down your own whatever for the good of other people. So I know I'm i not going to hear about that again, because uh, I don't want to have to preach angry. If I preach angry, it's not fun, all right? You won't like it, I won't like it, so let's just avoid that, all right? But, but that's, that's not going to happen again. But, but it's, a, it's a bigger issue, isn't it? It's love. It's love. So, if someone sits in your seat. What are you gonna do? If someone parks, beats you to your parking space, and they're closer to the church than you are. How are you gonna handle it? Who do you invite to church? Let me let me ask you a question. Do you only invite to church people that look just like you? Good question, isn't it? I've heard people say that. That when a church is, and this is past church experience, but that when people, when you're knocking on doors, if you come to a home and, and it's a it's a person of another ethnicity, then they then you can tell them about another church they can go to, but don't invite them to your church. That you know what that is? That is that's just that's just devilish. You just see It's wrong. It's just sinful. It's just it's just there's just no way around it. Who do you invite to church? Who do you love? Who do you who do you lay down your life for to see others? Uh, blessed by Christ. And so, as we exemplify this love with this new purpose, loving unity as a witness to the watching world, people will be appealed, it will appeal to people and people will be amazed by it.